You're listening to a message provided by Antioch Bible Baptist Church in Gladstone, Missouri. We intend this to be a helpful resource to you as you grow in your walk with Jesus Christ. This is intended especially for those who are unable to attend our worship gatherings and therefore were unable to hear the teaching of God's Word. This should not replace your gathering with our church as a member. If you're checking us out for the first time and are looking for a church to visit, we hope that you enjoy this content and that it impacts you personally. Thanks for listening. Today we're going to continue our study through the book of Exodus. Uh, We started this study a long time ago, and uh, we're continuing to get closer and closer to the end of the book. So we have about four or five weeks, so let's not lose heart, all right, in the book of Exodus. Let's uh, stay focused and finish strong. I'm going to give Bob a few more 20 passages to cover in uh, one so he can get up here and talk about that over the next few uh, Sundays. Not just kidding, but but we'll, we'll continue to work our way uh, through the book of Exodus. If you remember that Exodus is broken down into two parts. You have Exodus chapter 1 through chapter 18, you have the exodus of the children of Israel from Egypt. So you see that whole story unfold. And then you have Exodus chapter 19 through chapter 40, where God gives his covenant to the people and sort of helps them understand how the relationship between the children of Israel and God, Yahweh, is going to work. So we've worked our way through the first part. Now we've moved on to the second part. And as we've come to the second part, as we entered Exodus 19 and we came to the base of Mount Sinai, we come to God initiating this covenant with his people. And we found this in Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 through 6 where God said, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So as God is initiating this covenant with his people, he is doing it based on his grace. So he's reminding them of the grace that he showed them, that he delivered them or redeemed them from Egypt and bore them on eagles' wings and brought them to himself. He goes on and says, now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, this is the starting of this language, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples for all the earth is mine. Then in verse six, he ends it, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So at this moment, God initiates a covenant with his people. And he does it in Exodus chapter 20 through chapter 23 by giving them how this relationship and how this covenant is going to work. So we know Exodus chapter 20, the first part of it to be the 10 commandments, which many of us know. And then after that, which Bob walked us through was the book of the covenant. And the book of the covenant in chapters 20 through 23 is basically the outworking of the 10 commandments. So what does it look like in a cultural context in which they lived? That was the book of the covenant. And so today we come to the close or the finale of this covenant that God is making with his people. And here's the outline of the text that we're going to look at today. So we're going to go from chapter 23, verse 20 to the end of chapter 24. 
And what God does is after he finishes the covenant, he promises them conquest. So the idea that they're going to get eventually to the promised land and here's how it's going to work. Then in chapter 24, which some commentators have said is the most important chapter in all of scripture, Exodus chapter 24, the covenant is confirmed in the first 11 verses of chapter 24. This is where we will see a wilderness worship service. And then it ends with the glory of God being revealed to the people that they will look up to the mountain and they will see the glory of God on the top of the mountain. So here's a way for us to picture this covenant process um, that they've been working through and we've been working through in, ex, in Exodus 19 through Exodus 24. It is much like a relationship between a man and a woman who are going from just being friends to being married. There's a process to that that we have. It begins with engagement, right? The man asks the woman to marry him, her. And so it, it begins and that's what Exodus 19 is God is initiating the relationship. God is saying, hey, I want to be in a covenant relationship with you. Then Exodus chapter 20 through chapter 23 is the premarital counseling. So at Antioch, we require if, as pastors, if we're gonna marry you, we have to do premarital counseling with you because we think that's really important. Why? Because it helps you understand how your relationship is gonna work. And so it's good to sit down together and work through things like communication and conflict and finances and what does it mean to love each other really well and, and all those types of things we work through. So that's what he's doing in the book of the covenant is he's saying, this is how our relationship is gonna work. And then you have, so after engagement, after the premarital counseling, then you have the actual ceremony. And Exodus chapter 24 is the ceremony. It's the covenant, it's the exchanging of vows, it's the saying I do. So that, that just gives you an idea of how to look at this passage, Exodus chapter 19 through Exodus chapter 24. Picture it like a relationship of going from engagement to premarital counseling to the wedding. So we're about to the wedding in Exodus chapter 24, but it begins in Exodus chapter 23 in verse 20, by God saying, behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice and do not rebel against him for he will not pardon your transgressions for my name is in him. So God begins this promise of conquest by saying, I'm sending an angel of the Lord before you. We've seen this angel before. If you go back to Exodus chapter 14, when we're coming out of Egypt, you come to the Red Sea crossing. If you remember this, they get to the Red Sea and they're trapped, right? The, the army of Egyptians are coming behind them and they can't go across the Red Sea at this moment. So listen to what the Lord does in Exodus chapter 14 and verse 19. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them and the pillar of cloud moved before them and stood behind them coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. So we've seen this angel before and now he's saying, behold, I'm sending the angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I prepared for you. When he says, for my name is in him, it is referring to the idea that this is the pre-incarnate Christ. 
It is the second person of the Trinity that is leading them. As you go down through this promise of conquest, I'm not gonna take time to read each verse, but you'll find a phrase, if you just scan over it, you'll see repeatedly the phrase, I will. Verse 22, I will. Verse uh, 25, he will. Uh, and, and I will. Verse 26, I will. Verse 27, I will. Verse 28, I will. So throughout this promise, God is focusing not on the people necessarily. He's focusing on himself and saying, here's what I am going to do. I will do this. I will lead you. I will send hornets before you. I will do this for you. I will provide for you. God is saying, put it all on me. that I'm going to be true to my word and I'm going to get you to the promised land. But in this promises of conquest that God is making, in verse 24, he says, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. If you go down to verse 33, he says, they shall not dwell in your land, that's other gods, lest they make you sin against me. For if that you serve their guards, gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So what he says that the responsibility of the people is, as he's making all these promises, he says, your responsibility, children of Israel, is to obey my voice, to do what the angel of the Lord tells you to do, and then to destroy any of the idols or the false worship that is in the countries and in the places that you will take over. As God's covenant people, us today, through the person of Jesus, we are called to obey his commands. Listen to Jesus' words in John 14. In verse 15, he says, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So Jesus says an identifier of a follower of God is that you're gonna keep my commandments. You're gonna do what I tell you to do. He repeats it again in verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. So the expectation for us as followers of Jesus Christ is that we would obey the voice of God through the word of God that whatever God tells us to do, we will do it because it is in his word, it is his voice to us. But the same expectation of this idea of obeying, the same expectation of destroying idols in our life would be sin destroying sin in our life. Listen to how Paul puts it in Romans chapter eight, verses 12 and 13. So then brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So Paul says we need as followers of Jesus to put to death the deeds of the body. That just like the children of Israel, as they would take over these countries, were to destroy the idols and get all the pillars out and all the worship out of false gods. So we too, as God's covenant people, need to be destroying the idols and the sin in our lives. John Owens famously put it this way, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. 
Church, I believe that we are in real danger when we begin to cozy up to sin in our lives. When we begin to be okay with leaving a few idols around. When we begin to be okay with sexual immorality, when we begin to be okay with impurities, when we begin to be okay with lustful pleasures, when we begin to be okay with idolatry and sorcery and hostility and quarreling and jealousy and outbursts of anger and selfish ambitions and dissensions and division and envy and drunkenness and wild parties, when these things become tolerable in our lives, we are on a slippery slope. We are hurting our relationship with God and that sin is destroying our lives. Just earlier in Romans 8 and verse 6, Paul said this, for to set your mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. What's he saying there? If you look around you and all you see is death, then maybe you've cozied up to sin too much. But if you look around your life and you see life and peace, that means you're walking a different way than the way of the flesh. You're walking in the spirit. A way for us to process this is when is the last time you acknowledged a sin in your life before God? I think we need to be honest with each other. We're in a room full of sinners. Not one person you're looking at or sitting beside is not a sinner. Nobody in this room has it all together. And so confession should be a daily part of our lives. And so if you can't remember the last time that you came before God and said, God, I agree with you that my outburst of anger was wrong and, and, and that hurt our relationship with you. If you can't remember the last time that you were honest with God and said, God, I just, there's a lot of dissension in my heart towards people. Like I'm just looking for a fight. If you can't remember the last time that you confessed sin to God, then maybe you've cozied up too close to it. Maybe it's become too much a part of your life because here, here's the reality. We're gonna see this in the children of Israel's life as they go to conquest to take over countries. They're not gonna get rid of and they're gonna begin to get divided in their loyalty. And I think it's a good warning for us today as a church. Are we cozying up to sin? Are we not putting to death the deeds of the flesh? Or have we become okay? Are we, as Paul would talk about, are we abusing the grace of God? We know what 1 John 1, 9 says, that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession is agreeing with God. It's saying, God, you're right. I know what your word says and I've overstepped those boundaries and that's sin and I'm 
confess that to you and God is faithful and just to forgive you of those sins. And let's just be honest. Let's be a church that is a confessing church. I know we can come in here with smiles on our faces, act like we have got it all together, but we know because of scripture that we're all sinners and we're in need of God's grace. And so let's be a confessing church so that we can walk in the blessings of God so that our hearts can be right with him and in tune with him. So God says, obey my voice, get all the idols and all the altars out when you go in because that matters to our relationship. And then you come to chapter 24. And in chapter 24, you have what is referred to as a wilderness worship service. It's where the covenant is confirmed. And so here's how the wilderness worship service was planned out, okay? There was a call to worship in verses one and two. There's the reading of the word in in verses three through seven. And then there's a confession of faith at the end of verse seven. And then you have the sharing of the sacraments in verses eight through 11. So so look with me together in in your Bibles at this. Let's see the call to worship. Chapter 24, verse one, then God said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar. So this is God's call to worship. Come worship me, right? So Moses and the 70 elders go up to worship God. Then in verse three, in verse seven, it says this, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. Go down to verse seven. Then he took the book of the covenant, that's chapters 20 through 23, and read it in the hearing of the people. So the second part of their worship service was the reading of the word. This is why on Sundays, when we gather, our call to worship is our music. Many times that first song is a call to worship, like let's worship the Lord together. And then as we open the word and as we sing the word, we're putting our attention on the word of God because it is eternal, right? And so we want to be directed by it. So they read the word. And then there's a confession of faith. Look at verse seven in the last part. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. So as we come and we call ourselves to worship through the scene and as we come together and read the word, our natural response to that should be whatever the word says we'll do. See, they responded correctly. As they heard the word read, the natural thing for us to do if God is the king of our life, the leader of our life is to say, what you say will do. So we confess to that together as a church. When we go out from this place, we are saying, whatever the word says, we will do it. And then you see the sacraments in verses eight through 11. So we find blood here representing what's going to come with Christ. And Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then you drop down to verse 11 and it says, and they beheld God and ate and drank. So what you have is you have the sacraments. You have the blood and the bread. They're eating together. And so this is a wilderness worship service. But within this worship service, you have the confirming 
of the covenant. And the covenant is confirmed in two ways, through the blood and through a meal. So look with me back at this wilderness worship service. If you go to verse four, it says, and Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord and he rose early in the morning and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and he put it in the basins and half of the blood and he threw it against the altar. Okay, then you come to verse eight that we read. And Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. The blood sprinkled on the altar was God's blood signifying that he was one party to the covenant. The portion of blood that Moses put in the bowls and was for sprinkling on the people was a sign that they were recipients of the benefit of the shed blood provided. So this is the covenant being confirmed in blood. So this sprinkling of the altar was that God was initiating it. And when he sprinkles it on the people, he's signifying that they are the recipients of the benefit of this shed blood. This is the foreshadow of a greater offering of a greater covenant that was to come through Christ's shed blood for us. Here's how the author of Hebrews puts it in Hebrews 9, 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest, of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, and we're gonna to get to that in the days ahead, not made with hands that is not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy place, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So the author of Hebrews says to us that this covenant ceremony is pointing us to a greater covenant, a greater offering that will come through Jesus Christ. Then it says that they sit down and they have a meal together. Look at verse, uh, let's look at verse 10 first. It says, after this happened, that they saw the God of Israel. Now in Exodus chapter 33 and verse 20, it says that if you see God, you don't live, right? Nobody's ever seen God and has been able to survive that. So did they really see God or, or did they see a form of God? Well, if you go and you look at the rest of it, it says they saw God and there was under his feet as it were a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven of clearness. So they didn't actually see God because they couldn't live and see God. They, they actually saw uh, uh, this heaven, maybe the underneath side of God in, in heaven. And the Bible says that they beheld him and he did not, God did not lay his hands on the chief of the people of Israel. So God didn't strike them dead. Why didn't he strike them dead? Because of the blood 
because of the blood of the sacrifice. And then verse 11 says, they beheld God, they were gazing at God and he ate and drank. So the second part of the confirmation of this covenant was that they sat down and had a meal together. This is what would happen in this time frame when you would make a covenant with another party is one of the things you would do after you would do this blood sacrifice, you would sit down and have a meal with them. The idea was that you were no longer enemies of each other, now you were friends. You were no longer on the opposite side, now you were together in this life. This meal was a foreshadowing of a greater meal that was and is to come when we as the church gather and remember Christ's death through the sacraments of the cup and the bread And it is pointing us to even a greater day when at the wedding supper of the lamb, we will sit down with Jesus and we will enjoy a meal to him and he won't consume us because of the blood of Jesus. So this is the confirmation of the covenant. And then chapter 24, verses 12 through 18 ends with the glory of God being seen for the people. So, Basically, God then invites Moses farther up into the mountain. He goes up into a cloud. He spends about six, seven days there. And then God invites Moses to even come farther up into the mountain. And in verse 17, it says, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of all the people. So all the people see the glory of God as this this fire on the top of the mountain. And Moses, as their mediator, is going to them before God. Here's, Here's the really neat thing that's coming based off of this. As Moses goes up into the mountain, he's going to spend 40 days and 40 nights up there. And God's going to give him the 10 commandments written on stone, but God is also going to give him how the tabernacle and the temple and all that is going to work. So here's what God is going to do. God is going to move his presence from the top of the mountain, this distant deity, to in the midst of his people through the temple and the tabernacle. And now he will tabernacle amongst his people. So here's what I want you to get from the text today. If I could narrow it down to one sentence, I would say it this way. What God calls us to do, he will provide for us to do. What God calls us to do, he will provide for us to do. God calls, he initiates the covenant relationship with the children of Israel and he provides a way for them to have a relationship with him. God does the same thing for us. Think about it in terms of salvation. What God calls us to do, he will provide for us to do. The cross of Christ is the best picture of this that God calls us into relationship for him and with him and just doesn't say, go figure it out. No, he calls us into relationship with him and then provides a way for us to have a relationship with him through the person of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul would say in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you are saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a what? Gift of God, 
not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's not about you climbing up the mountain to God. It's about the fact that God has come to you and provided a way for you to be in right relationship with God. It's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He has provided a way for you to be in right relationship with God. So why are you trying to be in right relationship with God? Why are you trying to climb up the mountain of good works? Why are you trying to earn your way to heaven when what God has called you to do, he's provided, to you, provided for you to do through the person of Jesus Christ? And today I would invite you to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Stop trying and just Receive what God has provided to you, faith and grace and mercy. Take that for yourself today. He's provided for us. He's called us to salvation and he's provided it for us. And then he's called us to sanctification. This word sanctification has the idea of becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. So as we become in right relationship with God through salvation, then Jesus should begin to work himself out in our lives. We call this the fruit of the spirit that as people look at our lives, they should begin to see Jesus more in our lives. And Paul helps us to see that what God has called us to do, he will provide for us to do in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In verse 12, he says, therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest you fall. So if you think you got it all together as a follower of Jesus Christ, be careful. And if you go to earlier in that passage, his example is the children of Israel, actually that they, they sort of thought they had it all together and then that they eventually fall. So be, take heed, right, that we, we don't do that. But he says this in verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. What God has called you to do, he will provide for you to do. He says, as I've called you to, to walk, not to flee idolatry, he says in verse 14, to, to not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. You need to know that I'm gonna provide a way for you to escape. So when those temptation and trials come in your life, I'm gonna provide for you a way out. I, I'm going to provide for you uh, the ability to not be tempted beyond what I know that God is working out in your life. If he's called you to do it, he will provide for us to do it. This, this is huge for our Christian walk. So when I read the Bible and I read things that are heavy and it's like, I don't know that I can do that. The reality is you're just in the right place. Because when I understand that, what I know is that God has called me to do it. It's not gonna be my strength that's gonna do it. It's gonna be his strength through me. This is why Paul would say, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. He's saying, it's not me. It's Christ has called me to this and in me, he's gonna do it through me. He's provided a way for me to do it. Paul does this again in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where he has been dialoguing with God about this suffering that he's experienced. This, as he would refer to it as a, a thorn in the flesh, something that keeps him from moving forward, he feels like. So he goes to God repeatedly and says, can you take this away? Can you take this away? Can you take this away? And God tells him, no, no, I'm not gonna let it go from you. 
But here's what God does to say to him in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul is saying what God has called me to do, weakness, insults, persecution, hardships, he will provide for me to do. When I am weak, he is strong. See, it doesn't matter how we feel. It matters what God says. God has called us to do it, he'll provide. If he's called you to suffering, I promise he will provide the grace to endure. If he's called you to leadership, he will provide the wisdom to lead. If he's called you to marriage, he will provide the strength to love each other. If he's called you to parent, he will provide exactly what you need for each child. If he's called you to singleness, he will provide for you exactly what you need for this journey of life. If he has called you to be a missionary, he will provide exactly what you need to get to the place that he's designed for you to go to. Because what God calls us to do, he will provide for us to do. This moment on the mountain was a defining moment for the children of Israel because of the covenant that God made with them. But this moment on the mountain was repeated on the night before Jesus died. And we find this story unfold for us in Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 29, where it says, now as they were eating, so Jesus and his disciples were having a meal together. Jesus took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, take, eat, this is my body. And he goes on to say, then he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my, and we've heard this terminology earlier, didn't we, in Exodus 24? For this is my blood of the covenant, this is the new covenant through Jesus, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. So at this moment, Jesus is issuing a new covenant. This will be the covenant through his blood, through his body that will be broken for us through Jesus. And he says, so we're gonna eat this together in remembrance of what is to come for them. But I love verse 29. He says this, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it and it new with you in my father's kingdom. You see, there was this already not yet idea that as he was leading them in this last supper, as it's referred to, that as they were eating the bread and they were drinking the cup together and this meal that was signifying this new covenant that God was making with his people, now the church, he is saying, there's coming a day when we'll all sit down together and we'll have a meal together. You see, communion helps us to remember the already not yet. Just like the children of Israel had not entered the promised land yet, they were relying on the covenant of God through the blood of animals. So today we as God's children have not entered our promised land yet, but we rely on the covenant of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. 
And today, as we sit down at the table, as we take the cup and the bread, we are remembering his promise of salvation. And we are anticipating what is to come. We are anticipating the promised land. We are anticipating that day when we will sit down with Jesus and have a meal together. And so today we're gonna observe communion together. I think it was fitting. This is why I didn't preach this message last Sunday is because it's hard to observe communion together when we're looking at screens, but it is nice to be in the room together and to be able to observe communion as a way to remember the blood that was shed for us, the covenant, this new covenant through the person of Jesus Christ. And so I want us to take a minute and reflect in our hearts. I think we can't talk about sin in, in the message and even 1 Corinthians 11 says we're not to take of the communion in an unworthy manner. That's the idea if I've got unconfessed sin in my life, I need to confess it. If I've got relationships that are wrong within the church, people that I'm holding grudges against, I need to get those right before I, I take communion. And so it's, it's always wise for us not to run into communion and take it really quick and thanks, see you later. It's good for us to take a minute and to reflect. And so I want you to take a minute and reflect. Is there idols in your life that maybe you've been bowing down to and worshiping and it's time to confess them to the Lord and ask for forgiveness and to begin to ratify, to get those things out of your heart and life? Is there someone within the church that you need to make things right with? And so before you would observe communion as a church family, you need to go to that person and say, hey, I wanna, I wanna get things right with you before I do this. But let's take a minute and let's think about Exodus 24, Matthew 26, and what God has done for us through the person of Jesus Christ. And then don't forget to think about that day, the day that is to come where we as God's people will sit down together at the marriage supper of the lamb and enjoy a meal together because of the blood that Jesus has shed for us. Thank you for listening. You're always welcome at Antioch. If you desire more information, please go to antiochbbc.org. That's antiochbbc.org. God's best to you.